This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world to collaborate. Good morning, good morning. And uh, today we are talking about some lessons learned from the summer of violence, if you will, the protests that happened across the country and specifically uh, a little bit about Portland. But, you know, as we talk about this, we, we planned on doing, well, I started talking to our guest here and I'll introduce him in a second back in, I think it was like November. Uh, to get him on the show and we scheduled all the way out to now not even having any clue we would be where we are today and i think it's just apropos that we're going to be talking about the lessons learned from those issues um with the fact that uh, all 50 states are now kind of on a worry that there's going to be protests at their capitals so first i want to bring in my co-host and extraordinaire dan scott dan how are you doing today good morning how are you sir i'm yeah, doing all right and I think I'm going to have a beard like yours here in a little bit. You know, I've got the whole... Uh, Couldn't pull it off, man. No, I can't. Couldn't pull it off. I don't think you should go that way. I don't think you just do, do, what you, do what you do, do you. <laughs> so, but that being said, um, we're going to bring in um, Andrew. Andrew, come onto the show here. Andrew is the... Listen to this title. How big is your business card? He is the state emergency management director at the Oregon Military Department Office of Emergency Management. He is a Naval Post graduate, graduate, so congratulations on that. What a what an honor that is! And uh, in general, he's just one of those one around great guys. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Todd and Dan. Todd and Dan, what a, what a great morning show that would be. <laughs> the Todd and Dan show, I love it. <laughs> Or, or the, we banter, the banter would have to have a uh, have to have an advisory warning. That's right. <laughs> uh, or we could just go with EM Weekly, I guess. That's fine too. EM Weekly works, yeah. So, Andrew, you you're up at the state level. Uh, you're working for or not for, but working in the office of the National Guard, basically. And I want to ask some questions about the National Guard and kind of how how it works because I think some people don't really understand that process. And so I want to get into that. But first, how are you doing? Been. Uh, long year uh it continues to be a long year uh but you know when you're in emergency management these are the ways the the do work so that you can be in these positions help your communities get through the bad days and we've had uh, a lot of bad days lately across the country and certainly in oregon uh with our fires and floods and the pandemic and uh, civil unrest um each day you kind of wake up and, and you kind of wonder what uh, what's going to drop in front of you uh that day so let's let's walk through twenty twenty. I was about to say twenty nineteen. It feels like that. Let's talk to twenty twenty four for you. So, you know, obviously, you know, the pandemic hits. You start planning for that, and then we start having some serious civil unrest. What was it like to to plan for or to respond to, if you will, the civil unrest in the midst of a pandemic? I mean, that had to have been kind of. Yeah, well, we can even go back further in February, early February, right as kind of COVID was getting onto our radar a little bit. 
we had what would have been at that time one of the worst disasters we'd had in Oregon in over a decade with some flooding in eastern Oregon. Uh, it was a declaration that received a, a federal disaster declaration with individual assistance, which we don't get very often. Um, hundreds of homes were destroyed. Uh, one person lost their life. And we're like, wow, okay, this is, this is going to be a big deal for us this year. And, and we're sort of forward leaning on that uh, particular flooding event is, okay, this is, this is what we're going to be doing in 2020 is, is dealing with the, the recovery efforts from this flood. And then a couple of weeks later, we were, were pretty ramped up for the COVID response. Uh, and then uh, really precipitated, I, I think, uh, by uh, the death of George Floyd, uh, we saw uh, a pretty substantial uptick in civil unrest, particularly in the city of Portland. Um, you know, Oregon, uh, we've got a lot of college towns. The city of Eugene uh, certainly had some some issues uh, with civil unrest and, and protests. Uh, and, and Portland isn't, uh, uh, it's not unusual to have folks take to the streets and, and have their, their voices heard. Um, uh, over the last several years, there have been uh, uh, clashes between Antifa and uh, the Proud Boys and, and some far-right movements. Uh, but nothing as sustained as what we started to see uh, in the spring and heading into summer uh, for 2020. Um, the one, uh, I guess, if you, if you can find a, a positive in, in all of this, is that the city of Portland is really adept at handling these situations and mobilizing their forces uh, and coordinating with their, their neighboring jurisdictions. So uh, from the state perspective, um, we always, of course, maintain contact with uh, with our partners in, in Portland and Multnomah County. Uh, but it's one of those uh, – every state, I feel like, has that one big city where, where they have their act together and, and they call the state when they need help. Uh, aside from, from requesting state police resources and at one point uh, utilizing um, some National Guard uh, security forces uh, to protect a facility, um, Portland uh, did a pretty good job of, of – of keeping their organization running, uh, getting up in the morning, cleaning up the graffiti and the damage and the broken glass, and then getting back out to it uh, the next day. Right. Well, I mean, this, you know, with this last year, it's been, it's been an up and down of, of all these different, uh, different incidents that we've had to respond to. And I think since Baltimore, um, uh, Civil unrest and the, or the possibility of civil unrest is that's when it really started to hit um, the emergency manager's radar. As far as these are what things we need to plan for, and these are the these are the um, exercises we need to do. But when we and COVID came, or when we were dealing with COVID, it seemed like COVID was the front line. But we, all these other the hurricanes and the fires, and they were like secondary news. It almost became this this last year as if um, the protest. Where it was expected that it was going to turn into civil unrest. How did you plan for that as as the year progressed? So, uh, COVID flavored everything that we did this year. Uh, when you look at our, our natural hazard uh, responses to, to disasters that were uh, caused by natural uh, events, uh, natural hazards like like fires, wildfires, floods, etc. You have to take a, a different perspective on how you're responding to that, and how you're planning to respond. Uh, so, just on on those fronts alone, coordinating really early and often with the Red Cross on things like non-congregant sheltering. Uh, we had had a couple of smaller fires earlier in the fire season before we had our catastrophic fires uh, pop up on Labor Day. So, we'd been able to to do some some smaller mobilizations of the Red Cross to to get folks into hotels and motels and, and maintain some level of physical distancing. You add to that, I think, one of the, the things we saw early with COVID um, was 
inequity uh, in how hazards and, and disasters impact our communities. Uh, I think early on in my career, my mantra was uh, disasters are the great equalizer, right? You know, when everybody loses their home, it's like we're all on equal footing. And boy, that couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, I, I think with things like COVID and the fires we saw, uh, they just uh, highlighted the inequities in our communities and really showed that uh, disasters don't affect everybody equally. Um, those that are, are least equipped and least well-resourced to handle the, the, the shocks and stressors of an emergency or disaster, whether it's a pandemic like COVID or a fire or a flood, uh, they're hit the hardest. And, and they're, uh, they're the ones that um, have more challenges navigating the recovery systems and accessing programs to help them get back up on their feet. Uh, and, and I think heading into the summer with uh, uh, the death of George Floyd, uh, the other uh, flashpoints that we saw with Breonna Taylor and, and so many other folks who, who provided a stark example of inequity in, in our society in a lot of ways. It was just magnified by the impacts of COVID and, and the inequities that those that the, the COVID disaster uh, pandemic has laid bare, uh, the fires, the floods, um, and and it, it it created a situation where we had to address it, we had to acknowledge it, and we had to start having some really difficult conversations. So uh, here in Oregon really with COVID, uh, we try to take an equity lens and we continue to try to take a, a, an equity lens approach to how we're responding. Um, one of the, the first uh, communities that we looked at uh, being impacted were our migrant seasonal farm workers. These are folks that don't qualify for, for a lot of medical programs. They don't generally get insurance with their jobs and they live in congregate communal settings. Uh, and they're a huge economic driver for Oregon's uh, agricultural industry. So what could we do uh, to try to protect some of these folks who didn't have the means, didn't have the resources to take care of themselves and uh, were so vital to, to Oregon's economy, especially at that time at the start of the growing season? So, you know, there, there's no vaccine. Uh, there's very few uh, therapeutics that were available to, to treat folks when they were sick. So it was a prevention mission, right? Uh, we're, we're trying to stop people from from getting this this uh, virus and, and mitigate the spread. So we did what we could to get uh, protective equipment out to these uh, migrant seasonal farm workers so that while they were working, while they were living in these communal settings and there weren't a lot of options to avoid that, uh, they could at least have some level of protection. Um, and I think for me as an emergency manager, uh, it's hard to allow yourself and your team to take the time to think about equity when you're confronting a disaster, um, which is why it's even more imperative for us to start baking equity into the programs while we're building them, not when we turn them on for a response. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think the Biden administration, as they come in, uh, has a unique opportunity to, to almost hit the reset button on our individual assistance programs at the federal level, our mitigation programs, our preparedness grant programs, um, and rebuild some of these programs to be more equitable. Uh, they haven't been built that way. It makes it hard to roll out programs equitably when they've not been built that way. Uh, and, and for us as emergency managers to, to allow ourselves the time to pause and think, okay, uh, how are people that don't look like me going to be impacted by these decisions of these programs? It's tough. Uh, we need to increase the diversity of our workforce and, and, and certainly go back to these programs and think, um, how can they be built and delivered in a way that uh, allows uh, a more equitable access uh, across the spectrum of our communities? Absolutely. So when you guys were looking at 
the protest starting, right? And understanding that, yes, we, we have communities that need to get their, their voices heard, which I think everybody here, I hope everybody here that's listening will, would agree that the, uh, the First Amendment is something that needs to be protected. And, and, and as emergency managers, uh, when we're planning for these things, we have to allow for that, uh, for, for the expression of, of their feelings. Um, when you were looking at this, how what was the planning process like and what lessons did you guys learn that you could share with people that are planning for protests coming up in the next, you know, two, three, maybe even longer weeks? Yeah. So, so at the state level, you know, our role is really limited to supporting the locals when they need resources. We try to provide those resources, but I think one thing that we see, um, especially in, in civil disturbances and, and protests and, and when things go beyond a protest and become something that gets declared a riot, um, certainly in Portland, we had that on a number of occasions where uh, the Portland Police Bureau declared a riot. Uh, public information becomes so important. Uh, the 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 number of folks that are directly impacted by whatever the emergency is, uh, is far exceeded by the number of folks that need timely and accurate information about what's happening. Road closures, curfews, uh, the direction that uh, the rioters are headed, um, giving businesses information about what's expected uh, that evening uh, based on social media posts or or other ways that uh, law enforcement uh, gathers information about uh, the protester or the rioter plans. that becomes really, really important. And it amplifies, I think, the importance of trust uh, that the public has in government. Um, One of the overtones, I think, that we saw in the protests, especially in Portland, was a lack of trust uh, for the government. Um, uh, We we saw uh, a couple of different targets, if you will, uh, of the the protesters and and of the rioters' uh, anger. uh, and, And one of those targets was a federal building in downtown Portland. So then that brought in um, federal law enforcement, which threw more fire on the flames in a lot of ways. Uh, I don't know that it helped alleviate anything, uh, uh, but it it, it forced us to to make sure that we were communicating what uh, the governor's priorities were, uh, what her position was. Uh, The city of Portland was doing the same thing for the mayor of Portland and Portland Police Bureau doing all they could uh, to communicate with the rioters and the protesters and letting them know, hey, uh, you you could almost follow their the Portland Police Bureau Twitter stream in real time uh, where the the marches were headed, uh, where they thought they were going trying to give direction to the protesters via Twitter saying, hey, if you turn left here, uh, that's a no-go zone uh, and and we're not going to let you go down that road. Uh, uh, I don't know how effective that was, but it showed that the Portland Police Bureau was at least making an effort to try to to allow the protest to have their voice heard in a safe uh, and legal way uh, without causing damage. And then uh, putting out announcements, um, you know, uh, the crowd must disperse. Uh, there's, there are too many people. It's unsafe. We're seeing rocks being thrown, flares being thrown, etc. If you don't disperse now, you face arrest. And trying to communicate with the public as best as they could um, what the implications were going to be if they didn't uh, change uh, their tactics as as protesters or rioters. Um, so it it I, I think every emergency I've ever worked uh, has has reinforced for me, my core belief that all emergencies are public information emergencies. Uh, Having a robust joint information center with multiple partners, uh, utilizing every platform available to communicate and understanding that uh, the media uh, 
emergency, whether it's a riot or a flood or a fire. Uh, and, and we need to make sure that we're allowing uh, our media partners who we rely on to share information with the public, uh, access to elected officials, uh, and that they can tell their story uh, as, as part of our public information option uh, operations. Absolutely. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Andrew, I want to talk about how Portland gave a new definition to what it means to be a battleground state. The Outer Limit Supply Company was founded on the idea of providing high-quality first aid kits. Their goal is to supply the life-saving equipment you'll need to mitigate the majority of injuries often seen during austere times. From minor injury on an outdoor adventure with your family to your team responding to a major traumatic event, Outer Limits Supply has the kits to manage most situations, providing practical, user-friendly first aid kits that anyone can use. Enter EM Weekly, all capitals, at checkout and save 20% off your total purchase. Go to www.outerlimitsupply.com today. That's outerlimitsupply.com. So like most of us in this business, tactical nylon is like one of those things that we love to use, right? I mean, like we, everybody has bags and bags and because we deploy, we do these things left and right. So what I use is I use VanQuest bags and uh, VanQuest, you know, the thing that they do great is that they line their, their bags with a very bright orange aligner. So when it's nighttime or if it's under on low light conditions, when you open up the bag, you can find the stuff that you're looking for. Cause I'm always losing my keys inside my bags. And uh, with the VanQuest bags, that problem has gone away. So if you go to vanquest.com and vanquest gear, you can get your bags with a 10% discount by using EM5 weekly at checkout. That is EM5 weekly, all capitals at checkout, and get uh, 10% off your vanquest bag. There you go. <laughs> so, Andrew, before we want to break and talk about the, the battleground, redefine what the battleground is. And, you know, as we all watched the things unfolding in, in Portland specifically, and you mentioned it earlier, you have two specific groups. You have on the on the left, you have the Antifa, and on the far right, you have the, um, uh, the Proud Boys. And they, for whatever reason, Portland, which is a beautiful city, by the way. I really love going down there. and It's just gorgeous. It's a lot of fun. But they chose Portland to be their battleground. And, you know, I, I was joking with people when we were first watching this thing on TV. It looked like, if you guys are familiar with the term LARPer, which is the people that role-play battle, you know, they had their trash can lids and they're smashing into each other. Uh, but what was that like? I mean, like the Portland police, they, I mean, what were they? They couldn't really start plucking people off the street. How, would, how do they plan for that? And and what's the what? What can we do about that? Yeah, so you know, if you're not in Portland and you're not kind of living and experiencing and breathing what's happening there, there's this sense uh, that you know all of Portland was on fire and just bands of of marauding ne'er do wells, uh, causing havoc all over the city, and and that really wasn't the case for the most part. Uh, the 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 riots, the civil disturbances, um, were, were pretty isolated. Uh, but there were protests happening literally all over the city. Uh, Portland, if you've never been, it's it's a really unique town. Uh, it's there's like the big kind of 
urban core with office buildings and all that stuff that 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 you might think of when you think of a, of a larger city. But then there's just hundreds of just the most adorable little neighborhoods with their own movie theater and coffee house and craftsman homes and uh but but each of those those communities had marches and people voicing their displeasure and their distrust um when, when you look at sort of the things that were making the news uh the the molotov cocktails and the the police lines and and all of that that was in a pretty limited geographic area and, you know, not being privy to everything that the Portland Police Bureau was doing from a planning standpoint, I, I will say that the Portland Police Bureau uh, has had their fair share of experiences with protests. Uh, and even before uh, Portland became uh, the epicenter for a lot of that, it was Seattle. Um, Seattle, uh, going back 20 years, uh, has, has had their share of incredibly violent uh, protests with uh, left-leaning, right-leaning uh, activists. Um, so I, I think a lot of the cities in the Pacific Northwest have studied what has worked in Seattle, uh, and I would guess adapted that or adopted those tactics uh, for the city of Portland. Um, as as frightening uh, as I think the protests seemed, um, as disheartening as it is to see your city or parts of your city uh, being overtaken or being left unsafe, um, one of the, the more positive things was that uh, uh, for the most part, the protests would start. Uh, folks would march uh, for a few hours. They would just be destructive, uh, damage property, buildings, tear down fences, spray paint uh, facades. Uh, and then it would go away. Uh, we, we did have, of course, uh, one one highly publicized case of a of a shooting that that led to a fatality, and then the person who uh, who who shot the the other protester was himself uh, killed uh, while uh, police were were searching for him. Um, and and that's tragic. Uh, you you want to. You, you want to think that in our country and, and certainly places like Portland, which is uh, fairly diverse ideologically, believe it or not, um, that people can, can express their views and, and make their voices heard. Uh, but we've got to find a way to do it in a way that, that is, is safer, maybe, um, and, and doesn't involve all of the collateral damage uh, that we've seen, not just in Portland, but across the country. What was the response to the state with the, um, and I, I think it was the five freeway when the guy was going up the five and starting every mile mark or whatever, the, the wildland fires. What was that like? So down in, in uh, Ashland, which is yeah. down in Southern Oregon. Yeah. So the, the fires, and that was another thing. There were, there were all these rumors that um, uh, the fires that we were experiencing were being started by uh, Antifa out in the woods uh, and and uh, law enforcement across the board uh, uh, came out and refuted that and said there's absolutely no evidence. Um, the, most of the fires that we experienced started as a result of a windstorm. And so you have uh, existing fires that that uh, grew exponentially and then you had a lot of power lines that, that get knocked down into trees and, and those start fires. But down in uh, the, the Ashland Medford area, Southern Oregon, uh, not too far from the California border, uh, our most devastating fire, the Alameda Drive fire, was actually caused by arson. Uh, I, I would say that under normal circumstances, I guess, uh, or I should say alleged to be caused by or, uh, arson, they've, they've arrested a suspect in that, um, obviously. Uh, the person is entitled to a trial, and, and the trial will determine uh, 
what the actual cause of that fire was. Uh, but under normal circumstances, all eyes would be on that one. Uh, because we had so many other fires popping up at the same time due to the wind event uh, and abnormally dry conditions, low humidities, high temperatures, et cetera, uh, initially for us at the State Emergency Coordination Center, that was just another fire that was forcing evacuations and destroying homes. Um, uh, in emergency management, I, I feel in a lot of ways we're consequence management. Uh, you know, uh, you have a bad day, something bad happened. I'm less interested in what caused it during response than making sure that we're alleviating the suffering and trying to do all we can to protect lives, property, and the environment. So uh, after I think a day or two, we started hearing in the ECC uh, rumors or, or, or uh, reports that uh, the Alameda fire was likely arson or was likely human caused. Um, and, and we can have a whole other show about how all disasters are human caused. Uh, right, right, right. Uh, but uh you know, it was just because that fire became one of our most devastating, uh, over 4,000 homes uh, across the state were lost in fires uh, that, that started on or around uh, Labor Day. Uh, half of them were in Jackson County as a result of the Alameda fire. To know that that particular fire wasn't something that was caused by the wind event, that it was something that was intentionally started or appears to have been intentionally started, it, it's devastating. Um uh, I, I, yeah, it, it's hard to wrap your head around someone who would light a fire to cause harm on a day with 60 mile an hour winds blowing when most of the other state is on fire, uh, most of the rest of the state is on fire. And, uh, you know, that the, the firefighting resources are, are, are already taxed. Um, it's just, it's, it's hard to wrap your head around someone doing something like that. Well, that's being, you know, that's, that's, you know, that's not necessarily a new thing, but it is in the, in the United States, it's coming to where people are intentionally doing it. And that's something that's being, um, being uh, taught by terrorists, uh, by their, you know, start these wildfires and spread people thin. And it also leads to, you know, destruction of property and death and, 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 and run on the economy. Uh, so, you know, people pick these things up and they just get in their head to go do these things. But the, the last, the last couple, you know, this last year, but, you know, proceeding to 2019 kind of led into it. You know, when it comes to emergency, main emergency management realm, we joke about it, right? When we do these, these exercises that, that seem to just continue to compound on each other. Well, we lived it this year and we're, and we're still continuing to live on, you know, we, you know, we have, we have a global pandemic where we have hurricanes and fires and active shooters and we have, then we have crowds gathering that are for protests that turn into civil arrest and riots. These things actually happen. And these are yeah. things that we we were trained to and say, well, that's never going to happen here. Well, <laughs> it happened and it can absolutely happen. Uh, so how do we move forward? How do we continue to, to, to practice and exercise and train knowing that, Hey, uh, it may be the most, uh, out, you know, outlandish uh, scenario that it, we would think would happen, but we just lived through it. We just lived through you know, the, the earthquakes and the, the, the hurricanes and the fires and the, the civil, the, the civil unrest and the pandemic all compounded on one. So how do we move forward on, on our planning and, and taking, taking, make, make sure that we're prepared for the next time. Yeah. So great, uh, great thoughts. Um, 
there's there's a lot of things I think we need to do. Uh, one, we, we need to stop planning for what's easy or what our capabilities say we can do. Uh, we need to look at what our capabilities can't do, and that's what we need to plan for. Uh, and, and I think we need to look at our plans. Um, I can't tell you how many I, as a fairly experienced emergency manager this year, was like, wait a sec, are, are this following our plan? Well, no. Our, our disasters haven't read our plan, of course. Uh, and I think we find that sometimes our plans are not as flexible as we need them to. Um, one of the things that we've done, you know, our, our worst day in Oregon, uh, as bad as 2020 has been, uh, and I say has been because it feels like 2020 is still going on. Uh, one of our, our worst day in Oregon, and I think maybe our worst day in the country, is a Cascadia subduction zone earthquake and tsunami. Um, there are a few hazards that we face that, that will be as devastating as that. So we took a different approach uh, to planning uh, for Cascadia and develop a playbook. Uh, it's, it's almost a, a checklist of things that need to happen uh, in some level of a sequential order based on time within the first four hours. We need to make sure uh, we have access to the governor. Uh, or whoever is going to be the head uh, elected chief elected official of our state, if the governor is not accessible, so we can start making decisions. Uh, and 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 some of these time based operations of things that have to happen, so that absent really good situational awareness, uh, we can still keep the action moving. Uh, I, I spent some time uh, in my career as a firefighter, and when you show up to a fire or you get dispatched to a fire. Uh, there are things you know you're going to do. You're going to hit a hydrant. You're going to stretch hose lines. You're going to do a search of the structure. Um, and and on your way to the fire, you start planning in your head that you're going to do those things. And then once you show up, you do a walk around the facility, the building. You, you do your assessment, your size up, and you adjust your tactics based on that. When we have these really big disasters, and, and a Cascadia would be maybe the best example, you don't have the capacity to do a size up. You're not going to have communications to the coast in Oregon to know if Lincoln County is still standing or if there's still functioning government in Lincoln County. So you're going to have to, to have uh, this playbook based on assumptions and, and, and the best assumptions you can make in advance so you can, you can take action absent good situational awareness and a good size up or assessment of what's actually happening. As more information comes in, as you gain situational awareness and can establish a common picture, uh, you can refine your tactics. Uh, but we can't be paralyzed waiting for information to come in to make some of these decisions. So as we looked at uh, our, our, our wildfires, uh, we knew that there were going to be certain things we had to do regardless of what the fire was. And one of those was if, if we evacuated folks, we'd have to do non-congregant sheltering. So that started a very early conversation with the Red Cross for us in our state and the Oregon Department of Human Services, which is our ESF uh, six mass care lead. Uh, it's you, 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 can't get locked into what your plan says you're supposed to be doing. Our, our plans need to be more frameworks. Um, they are not uh, uh, something that, that's going to tell you, first you do this, then you do this. They, they need to give you uh, uh, a range of expected actions uh, and secondary and tertiary actions so that you don't get that vapor lock of inaction waiting for more information to come in. I, I uh, We'll, we'll tell anyone who asks, uh, I'm, I'm always happy to provide testimony or give a statement about decisions that I made and actions that I took. I'm much less comfortable having to give testimony in front of the legislature about things I didn't do or decisions mm -hmm. I didn't make. Um, I, I always prefer uh, 
action to inaction. And our plans need to reflect that. And we need to educate folks uh, outside of emergency management about what our plans and what our expectations are. Uh, when you get these big disasters, everybody wants to come in and, and be helpful. Uh, most of those folks don't understand what their role is or, or oftentimes what maybe their agency's role is. And they hadn't spent a whole lot of time thinking about what their role would be in a disaster. Um, it's, it's, it's like your insurance policy, right? When, you're, when your uh, home isn't on fire, you don't think about it. Uh, you don't want to sit down and spend an hour and a half talking to your insurance agent about the details and the minutia of your coverage and what everything means. Um, you don't think about it until you need to. Right. Uh, and I think we take that approach with emergency management a lot, where a lot of folks don't think about our function until they need to. And by then, the learning curve gets so steep, uh, it's, it's a challenge for folks to absorb and adapt to, uh, to the structures that we, that we develop. <clears throat> Excuse me. I want to take a look at some of the the, the comments today because uh, some of them are very pertinent. So Robert Whitman talks about uh, misinformation in um, in cases here, and it goes into the areas where communities in Oregon were um, want to set up checkpoints to keep people out during the wildfires because there's rumors of intentional fires. And I think that's right. I mean, like one of the things that we have to do as emergency managers is work harder on um, on rumor control, and you know you know so. There's, there's that. And it looks like John Taylor was saying that those are some of the same examples that are happening in Nashville right now with the explosion that went over there. Um, you know, so that's it. Now, I do have a question about Cascadia. And Robert, again, comes in and says, Cascadia Rising Playbook is a great document available to the Oregon State website. Um, I was looking at some of the decisions that were made uh, back in 2019 regarding changing the inundation zone maps uh, to allow for building in the, in the tsunami zone. Um, was when that was going on was emergency management were they even were they consulted during that decision or do they just it was it just a political decision and they did it that way I'm kind of curious about that yeah so that was a, a a legislatively driven action uh there was not a whole heck of a lot of consulting uh that i am aware of um not just with emergency management but in oregon the uh, department of geology and mining industries dogami uh they're the state agency that actually develops uh the inundation maps and does incredible work on landslide mapping and and a host of other uh natural hazard preparedness initiatives um yeah it was it was a little bit of a surprise when that happened um you know our, our elected officials, they have to balance uh, the economies of their communities, uh, their uh, infrastructure, where they're placing infrastructure and, and, and what they need locally uh, with what we think of uh, is important as emergency managers. Um, I, I tell anyone who will listen to me, uh, the best thing we can do to, to reduce our risk is be more thoughtful and deliberate about how we build and where we build. Uh, that's true of the tsunami inundation zone. It's true of the wildland urban interfaces, certainly floodplains and, and flood prone areas. Uh, the challenge is uh, where do you find that spot that's safe? Uh, you know, that's not going to be susceptible to a tornado or a high wind event or a tsunami or an earthquake. Uh, it's tough. So, so when we look at, at where we build and our options become limited, we have to take a long look at how we build and what we're putting in those areas where we decide to build. Um, again, my job as a state's emergency manager is to find ways to reduce risk. Uh, building in a tsunami inundation zone in the wild and urban interface in floodplains are not a way to reduce risk. 
Uh, but I understand that communities have limited space available to them and they need infrastructure and they need to, uh, uh, to look out for their economy. So it's, it's a place where I think uh, emergency managers, land use planners, uh, building code uh, officials, uh, and, and elected officials need to come together and find some common ground that says, okay, we shouldn't build here. If we're going to build here, let's build here with our eyes wide open. Let's invest in the appropriate infrastructure so we can provide warning, so we can build our structures to be seismically sound, uh, leverage earthquake early warning technology, uh, and do all we can so that if we're going to put people potentially in harm's way based on where we have a piece of infrastructure or build something, uh, we've got the best chance get folks uh, to safety when a bad coming. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for your time today. I mean, it's, I could sit here and talk to you forever about this, and then we'd really run into like our time constraints and stuff like that. Daniel, it's always a pleasure to, to see you and uh, keep smiling there, big man. And everybody else, thank you so much for, for listening to us here today. Um, if you have any more questions, please feel free to keep the conversation going in, in, in the comments because um, I think this is a really important topic and, uh, you know, um, we're going to be seeing more of this and, and, and Andrew, absolutely correct. It's all about the economy. Um, and it's about keeping us involved in making decisions though, as emergency managers, I think we should do a better job at that. But anyway, everybody follow us on uh, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, please like us, uh, please share this with your, your friends and family, let them know what a, uh, what great information we're sharing here. And please reach out to our sponsors because without them, we could not bring you the quality shows we bring. Until next week, stay safe, stay warm, stay hydrated.